Welcome to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Deftari. A lot of news coming out of Iran this week, a so-called election that introduced us to the Islamic Republic's new president, Ebrahim Raisi, and news from Vienna that the latest Iran nuclear talks have been adjourned with no resolution. This, as Iran's new president says, this whole thing is a wash if all the sanctions aren't moved beforehand. Also on today's show, we're going to talk about the increasing incidence of anti-Semitism going on around the world, particularly here in the United States. And if you're only hearing about this for the first time right now, then you'll definitely want to take a listen. As I introduce today's guest, distinguished expert Len Khodorkovsky, who served at the State Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Global Affairs. He was also a senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Iran and the Chief Marketing Officer of America's Economic Diplomacy. And before joining the government, Len was an advertising exec for more than two decades, helping Fortune 100 companies develop global campaigns and grow their brands. And a man of many, many skills and talents. Welcome to the show, Len. Thanks for having me back, Lisa. Real pleasure. We're, we're so glad to have you back. The viewers enjoyed you very much on our uh, foreign policy power panel a few months ago. Uh, but you can shed a lot of light uh, and expertise on what's going on uh, more, more recently. And I want to start with Iran's presidential election. So let's uh, put aside for a moment the claims from inside the country that this was, of course, a sham election, a selection rather than an election. Uh, polls indicating that out of the uh, number of eligible voters, again, and population 80 million, uh, the, uh, the number of eligible voters, only si about 60 to 75 percent said that they're even boycotting the election. They're not even going to show up. With all of that, um, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but we know that the Iran, uh, the, the regime in Iran, it's all about the supreme leader, right? Um, how significant is this particular presidential election? Why should we care about it? We're seeing more headlines than we ever do about Iran's presidential election. Um, well, uh, you're right about uh, who really makes the calls in, in the Iranian regime. It's the supreme leader. And I hate saying supreme leader because who elected him supreme leader, right? Um, Self-proclaimed supreme leader. Uh, so, but, but the election is, uh, uh, is significant in a couple of ways. Uh, number one, for the person that was, quote unquote, selected to this post, uh, who is, um, as, as many people have observed, is, is uh, nicknamed the Butcher of Tehran, and with good reason. He's responsible for the mass murder of thousands, uh, anywhere between three to 7,000 people um, in, um, uh, in, in the 80s, 90s, and as the, um, um, you know, as, as the head of the judiciary, judiciary lately. So uh, there's no love from the people of Iran for Ibrahim uh, Raisi, who is, the chosen president of the Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, the, the other reason why it's significant is um, that, you know, some people have observed that uh, perhaps this uh, Khamenei is grooming his next replacement and uh, the butcher of Tehran is going to replace the, uh, um, you know, the, the current butcher in that seat. Um, the, the, you know, finally, I think it's important for Americans to understand that while the Biden administration is negotiating uh, the return to the uh, previously fatally flawed Iran deal, it's no coincidence that uh, Ayatollah Khamenei has chosen this person to be the beneficiary of all of the sanctions relief that uh, the Biden administration 
is uh, inexplicably offering uh, as a return to this really terrible deal. Yeah. And so he's, he's positioning Raisi to be the, um, uh, someone that he can point to to say, see, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the so-called moderates couldn't get a good deal, but this guy is, look at everything he's getting. So this is all theater. And the Iranian people know it. And what's important is for people outside of Iran to understand the nuances and what's going on. Right. And, you know, in his first press conference, he's already setting the stage, right? He's, he doubled down on not meeting with Biden. He's playing hard to get, so to speak. Uh, he said the Iran deal is non-negotiable. Uh, all sanctions have to be off uh, before we even. Uh, but what dimension does this now, this hardliner uh, now bring to the, you know, the circus, the uh, the, the fact that the, the U.S. is, you know, um, courting them like never before? Well, you know, the, the Biden team has gotten themselves in a pickle, haven't they? Um, they have they had all the leverage that uh, the Trump administration has amassed over the last four years through maximum pressure campaign. They had all the cards. The Iranian regime had really one card to play, and that's the threat of uh, nuclear uh, development, which they've played because it's the only thing they have to play. Uh, however, there, there is, you know, there's no way the regime is going to uh, risk its collapse by reaching uh, or getting close enough to getting a nuclear weapon because they know the entire world will uh, unite uh, against them and the regime just won't last. So they've been playing, um, you know, they've been playing well and they've, they've played the uh, Biden administration um, uh, very, very successfully. Uh, even now, they're trying to get uh, as much as they possibly can out of the administration because uh, the, uh, the 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 team headed by Rob Malley in Vienna um, hasn't been really stingy in, in all its giveaways. Um, so so it, it's it's um, uh, you know I give I give the regime credit for 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 uh, playing their cards well, and I'm still baffled by why the Biden administration has chosen to give away all their leverage, mm -hmm. even if they don't agree with maximum pressure. You have uh, some things that you want to get out of the regime. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of the longer, stronger, um, you know, aim that that uh, Secretary Blinken has talked about and, and President Biden has talked about. In other words, um, uh, get, get them back into compliance with the nuclear deal, mm -hmm. but then strengthen the deal by virtue of adding, you know, rest restraints on missile technology and terrorism, all those other things. Of course, that's a lot harder when you give away all of your leverage. So that that is baffling to me. You know, they're, they're a negotiating strategy, that is. Right. And, you know, we used to say, look, we don't know, uh, are they ignorant? Do they not see the, the evidence that obviously is mounting against Iran and, and, and against this deal? Um, obviously, the enrichment of uranium, the fact that um, right on the, the eve after the election, a, a White House official said, we know that this election wasn't free or fair. I mean, how can you make a statement like that and then jump through all kinds of hoops uh, to make this happen? Case in point, Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee are probing the Biden administration, as you know, uh, Len, for lifting sanctions last week on, on Iran's uh, terrorism apparatuses without first consulting Congress. And they wanted to skirt this oversight. So now they're investigating uh, the administration's decision to give this immediate sanctions relief. And this could potentially show that the State Department allegedly lifted sanctions as a secret concessions to make this deal go through. As someone who is part of the State Department, um, 
do you think this actually happened, A, and B, who would have had to have ordered the lifting of sanctions? Uh, well, you know, these things could happen and they could be buried in the bureaucracy uh, in a way that's most convenient, of course. Um, and, um, you know, I, I can't I can't tell you whether it did or didn't happen and why it did or didn't happen. But what I do know is that the Biden administration has, um, you know, I, I, I hate to use the word deceive the public in their uh, in their attempt to get us back into a really terrible deal. But uh, right from the beginning, uh, Secretary Blinken has said that, uh, well, first Iran has to come back into compliance and then we will get back into compliance. That red line was crossed. Then we're not going to relieve sanctions on any uh, um, uh, any non-JCPOA-related sanctions. And that line seems to have been crossed. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the, frankly, even before sitting down at the table, the uh, Biden administration has uh, revoked the um, foreign terrorist organization label or designation from the Houthis for Iranian proxies in Yemen, as I'm guessing is a goodwill gesture on their part. Um, but but so I, I don't know what to believe anymore in terms of public statements. All I know is that actions speak louder than words. And uh, I do know for a fact that the deal, the original deal that o the Obama administration negotiated with John Kerry, um, that, that, you know, th that was a a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad deal that everybody but the but the Biden but the, that Obama administration knew, and and now it's even worse because not only is it not the original deal, but some of the provisions of the original deal have already started to expire, like Iran's ability to buy jets, tanks, satellites from Russia and China, uh, and more and more provisions will be expiring. Uh, almost on a, on a regular basis from now until the deal itself is completely um, you know, it dissolves into oblivion and Iran has the legal pathway to obtain a nuclear weapon. So when I hear uh, the State Department spokesman say that uh, the, the original deal uh, guarantees that uh, Iran will never obtain a nuclear weapon in a permanent and verifiable way, that is laughable. It, it, it makes no sense. Yeah, a plain reading of JCPOA, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, an agreement, not even a treaty, obviously, because the Obama administration could not get a treaty passed Congress at the time, which which nobody signed. There are no signatures to this agreement, just as a matter of technicality, that even a plain reading of that um, allows Iran to pursue um, uh, it takes all restraints off of the world's top a terrorist regime to pursue a nuclear weapon at the end of the expiration of the deal. So I don't know what they're talking about. I think they're hoping that um, uh, the, the observers are either ignorant or are, are compliant and pulling the wool over American people. Yeah, it's it's like a bad movie. I mean, why why this one sided courtship? I mean, why are they so focused on getting this deal? Um, and like you said, I mean, the U.S. keeps bending over and bending over, and pretty soon they're going to be flat on their backs. And the Iran regime keeps making more provocations and announcing, you know, a higher level of uh, enrichment uranium, or flexing their muscles somehow with some military tests, or you know, it just it just seems like we're we're moving farther and farther apart. And yes, yet. The uh, White House is doing all this gymnastics. Um, I mean, why are they deceiving 
the American public um, in order to cover up for a deceitful partner in the Iranian regime? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm no therapist, Lisa, but here's, here's kind of, I guess, my guess or, or read on this. Um, the Biden administration clearly wants to do the polar opposite of what the Trump administration did. So it's some sort of a blind spot or a mental block that, uh, that they're insisting on uh, moving forward with. So the people who staff the foreign policy of the Biden administration are, are pretty much uh, the people who staff the Obama administration. So, uh, you know, I, I'm sure they took it personally when President Trump exited the deal because it did not protect the American people and paved the way for the world's top state sponsor of terrorism to eventually um, uh, attain a, a the most dangerous weapons in mankind. And so they, I'm sure they took that personally. And now they're hell-bent on, um, on, on basically uh, going back in time and forgetting that the last four years ever happened and refusing to credit the Trump administration for the positive national security achievements that, uh, that we've been able to secure. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter whether they made sense or not. The fact mm -hmm. that the Trump administration was involved, I think, is good enough for them to, to, to do the polar opposite. And, and this is not just with Iran. Right. This is with Abraham Accords. Mm -hmm. This is with their border policy. This is this is uh, something that's consistently been the M.O. of the Biden administration. Yeah. Speaking of, of which, I know you had a front seat um, at, the, at the White House as a senior advisor to the uh, representative for Iran. Uh, and I hear a lot of critics make the claim that the pressure campaign that you referred to uh, under Trump, which was meant to place these targeted sanctions on uh, Iran's regimes, again, the Iranian regime's most sensitive uh, weapons, intelligence sectors, um, that that pressure campaign is actually uh, to blame for the current trajectory of the uh, Iran-U.S. Relations. What do you make of that claim? Is this a family show, Lisa? <laughs> uh, I, I, frankly, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, the d demonstrably, the maximum pressure campaign um, has succeeded in withholding the resources that the Iranian regime, and again, I cannot stress this enough, the world's top state sponsor of terrorism, this is not disputable. The State Department has designated the regime um, as 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 uh, the um, as a leading sponsor of terrorism for almost forty years across all all administrations, so this is not Len Karakovsky or the Trump people saying this. They are, they are in fact the world's leading terrorist regime. So, um, when when you're dealing with the world's terrorist regime and you succeed in denying the world's top terrorist regime, the money to spread around and cause havoc around the region to finance Hezbollah, Hamas, the Houthis, Assad, um, the uh, Qatayb Hezbollah in Iraq, and all sorts of other proxies that are responsible in uh, killing and, and warmongering around the Middle East. And let, let me just also underscore that the regime is responsible for assassinations and death across all uh, continents around the world for the last 43 years of its existence. This is not. This is not a, uh, a an entity that uh, that that could be trusted. So when when you deny them the means to behave in a way that they behaved, uh, and um, and they continue behaving the, the way that they're behaving, I mean, 
uh, um, is is that really does that really make sense? I mean, I, I don't think it does. Right. I think the goal is to weaken the regime, not to weaken our national security, and that's what we did. And right. we're, I'm proud of what we accomplished. And I, uh, I, I, uh, I, I'm disappointed that the uh, you know this this almost like childish outlook of this administration in terms of um, defending our national security is is what's driving the policy here. Yeah, and we know what their uh, their what their goal is. Obviously, the Biden administration's goal is to get to the finish line, right? To sign another Iran nuclear deal at whatever cost. Um, like you said, national security jeopardizing, you know, our assets in the region here at home, our ally Israel in the region, um, all of that. You know, what's I'll tell you personally, I thought they were going to strike a deal this time around. Why? Because I thought the deal would be announced before the actual Iranian uh, election. I know that the mullahs were extremely worried about getting people out to vote. Uh, They knew that the turnout would be very, very poor. Uh, I think the Iranian people made it very clear that they're boycotting this. They had a whole campaign, a no to the IR. the hashtag went viral months before the actual election. So I thought they'd want, you know, the Achilles heel, get the people off our backs, bring the people out to vote, you know, create that national pride again by announcing a deal on the eve of the election. So I thought that it would actually work out. I was wrong, not psychic. And I guess my ability to read the Iranian regime is not so great. Um, Again, we know what the White House's goal is. What is the calculus on the side of the Iranian regime right now? Um, the Iranian regime has a very good comfort level that they can get pretty much whatever they want out of the Biden administration, because um, every time they ask for something, they get it. And so time is really on their side. And uh, I think that's the calculus that Khamenei um, has has worked under. And, and it's paid off because every week that goes by and every round negotiating round that goes by, the regime gets more and more concessions. Uh, I, I would even point to they're getting concessions beyond the original JCPOA. The Obama administration and their fact sheet, uh, um, original fact sheet, pointed out that uh, you know that that the, the nuclear uh, only only um, uh, nuclear related sanctions would be on the table. However, uh, terrorism related sanctions, human rights related sanctions, uh, everything else, the the uh, administration would not. Um, w- would not concede. And the Biden team seems to be conceding even, even those that the Obama administration didn't dare um, cross. So uh, I think I think the, the game plan here is to get as much as they can out of the Biden administration. And um, frankly, I, I think the pressure is on the Biden team now to, uh, to strike the deal before Ray E.C. takes office because the optics of lifting of all of those sanctions and providing relief to this butcher is just not a good look. So if they're going to concede all of these things and, and, and provide billions and billions of dollars in sanctions relief to any Iranian regime, it may as well be Rouhani, you know, who's in their mind, so a so-called moderate uh, that's presided over the most executions of any Iranian regime in his, during his administration. But but they, they they like to portray him and Zarif as moderates, so I think they're they're going to be under the gun to 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 concede everything they can and 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 uh, and get the deal done before Raisi takes office. Because I mean, imagine the optics of the Biden administration announcing a deal with a mass murderer 
that the you know Amnesty International just called for a thorough investigation and prosecution of this person. So, so I think that's that's the game plan, and uh, I, I would look for some sort of a deal before August when Rainsy is supposed to take office. Oh, interesting. I mean, do you think there's really? I, I think if we had some Iranians here from Iran, I don't know if they would they would, uh, you know, uh, agree that there's a difference between Rouhani. Uh, and Raisi or Zarif and Khamenei or any of them. Uh, they consider this, you know, a, a, a terrorist regime. And if the money comes in during Rouhani, it will be spent under Raisi. Um, you know, so is there even a difference between the different uh, leaders if, if they're under the umbrella of the Islamic Republic? No difference. So mm -hmm. we know that and the Iranian people know that. And maybe even the Biden administration knows that, but they mm -hmm. have to pretend as if they're moderates or reformers reformists uh, who are, you know, if only we empowered them, everything would be so much better. But of course, the, the original deal had three years to work. Uh, you know, we, we gave $150 billion to Rouhani, the moderate, and Zarif, the moderate, okay. the so-called moderate, uh, and uh, before the Trump administration even exited the deal. And uh, mm -hmm. did, who, who saw the benefits of, of all of that money? Exactly. Not the Iranian people. Uh, the regime just got richer. It uh, it uh, armed and financed uh, Hezbollah and Hamas and and the Houthis and all of their other puppets around the region, and which is why the people took to the streets during the Rouhani administration. Right. You know they're sick of it. I think they're done. I think the regime is cooked. Uh, there's no way that they'll ever have legitimacy uh, among the Iranian people ever again. And the yeah. only way they can stay in power is by um, but by murdering the people, which which they're pretty good at, unfortunately. Right. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because you you look at at so many of these um, you know leftist woke kind of human rights uh, or social justice movements, and if they really would have applied that to the the Iran nuclear deal uh, topic, uh, and look at the people of Iran and what they're suffering through, and you know this is this is it's it's really a, a, a it's morally sinful to give this money and to give this legitimacy and to give this breathing space to such a murderous regime. If they brought you into the White House today under the Biden administration. Um, no unicorns and no pink fairy dust. What would you, given you know the, the stage is set as it is, you know, you can't change anything, you can't have three wishes. How would you advise them to deal with Iran? How would you curb the Iranian regime? Well, number one, um, you know, I'm, I'm fond of maximum pressure. I would double maximum pressure. I would make it excruciating pressure, to be honest with you. Uh, because the the only that's the only tool that the regime understands. That's what brought him to the table for the Obama deal, and um, and that they see the writing on the wall. They understand that the people are done, and they're going to hold the regime accountable for its corruption, mismanagement, warmongering, human rights abuses. The people are done. So when we say maximum pressure, it's not just America applying the pressure. It's uh, the people, the Iranian people, applying the pressure from within as well. And at some point, the regime has to, you know, in, in the Trump administration, we, we were fond of saying we're, we're after regime. Uh, um, uh, we wanted the uh, regime to change its behavior. Uh, the people were kind of upset with us for that because they've already had it with the regime. But it's hard for me sitting here uh, watching this regime and, and uh, seeing all the nuances to really understand how you can reform 
um, this this um, this evil entity that has been oppressing the Iranian people for 42 years. Um, I just don't think it's possible, and the Iranian people think don't think it's possible either. And so uh, I think in in the way that Ronald Reagan has empowered. Um, uh, you know, people of the former Soviet bloc mm -hmm. to to be able to resist the oppression of the of the communists in the Soviet Union. I mean, I, I think we have to do everything possible to support the Iranian people to uh, to to be able to determine their own destiny in a way that reflects their traditions, their values, and and their human rights. And uh, you know, look. I mean, yeah. we, we, we did that in the Trump administration the best mm -hmm. way we could. Right. And I think that's what, you know, if Len Kutarkovsky walks into the, uh, the, the, you know, the administration again, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. Um, <laughs> uh, that, th that's what I would advise. Uh, stand with the people, forget the regime. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we, we do everything we can to really amplify their voices, their hashtags, their videos, uh, to really have their voices heard uh, and, and, and to show and demonstrate what the real true colors of the, the uh, regime are, because it seems like our administration really isn't taking the 80 million people's words for it. Um, I want to switch gears for a minute, not totally unrelated, but uh, to talk about the increase in uh, anti-Semitic attacks across the globe, but mainly here in the U.S., where we've seen uh, exponential increases in 2019 and 2020. We already saw the those numbers growing, going up, uh, but especially in the last month, uh, ever since the conflict between Hamas and Gaza and Israel, obviously used as a pretense to uh, launch attacks here. Uh, I know New York, uh, Los Angeles, on the streets of London and Montreal, we saw, you know, horrific, horrific attacks against Jews, uh, those who support Jews. Um, in addition to your role at the White House, you um, you, you came out with a, a more personal response to all of this. And I'm referring to your op-ed, uh, which was called Anti-Semitism in the U.S. My family fled the USSR because of it. We never expected it. We never expected it in America. Um, can you describe your reaction and the feelings you had in, in response to seeing what we are experiencing right now? Yeah, Lisa, I, 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 it's, it's, it is very personal. Um, as you mentioned, uh, on, on August 13th, uh, I will be, and my family will be marking 40 years since we arrived in the United States from the Soviet Union. And uh, coming to the United States from a place where anti-Semitism was prevalent, it was just embedded in the system. Um, and, you know, being able to, to flee that kind of a system and be granted uh, a second chance, um, at, you know, in the greatest country in the world was kind of magical. It was surreal. And of course, you know, what was even more surreal is religion and religious tolerance was was taken for granted here. That was really unusual. Mm -hmm. That is not that was not our life experience uh, up until right. this point. And so, you know, I, I, you know, our family loves America for all of those things. And it's it's the it's the pinnacle of, of freedom in general, religious freedom. Uh, freedom of speech, freedom for any individual to be able to achieve uh, uh, their their destiny, and that's how we, you know, I, my wife and I raised our kids. What what really hurt us recently is, and it's been kind of percolating over the years, um, you know, whether it's uh, you know creeping from Europe, whether it's uh, the 
defacing of cemeteries and synagogues right. in Philadelphia and St. Louis and, uh, and, and the shootings at the Tree of Life Synagogue and in Poway Synagogue in San Diego. Slowly but surely, it's been creeping closer and closer to home. And, um, you know, frankly, you know, we've seen it with our kids in, in school where yeah. some, some of their peers have ostracized them because they dare to be um, supporting the Jewish state of Israel and be overtly, proudly Jewish because somehow um, this is not allowed anymore by the woke, um, you know, uh, uh, value system. So, so it's it's really it's really hurtful. And frankly, you know, we've seen what happens in the UK with the Corbynization of the Labour Party. And when I when I see AOC and Alan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and and uh, the rest of the Hamas caucus get up there on the floor of the House of Representatives and rail against. Um, the the Jewish state of Israel and find moral equivalence between the United right. States, Israel, and um, and and uh, Hamas and in and Iran and that and, and Taliban. I mean that is offensive. That is I mean, offensive. even even Hamas was offended. Did you hear about that? Even Hamas was offended by her her, <laughs> her comparison. Yes. Well, good. <laughs> right. Exactly so, right. So so. Um, so, so it, it, it's really starting to get closer to home, and we're worried. We're frankly worried that this country, this country of promise, the country that George Washington has uh, has envisioned, and in, in the op-ed that I wrote that you mentioned, I, I, I kind of cite the letter that George Washington sent to the Hebrew congregation in Rhode Island, assuring the congregation that the Jewish people, um, the, the seeds, seeds of Abraham, will be able to find um, room to practice their religion, just like every other, uh, you know, uh, religious group in the United States, and live in peace. And 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 we're we're getting to a point where that that is no longer to be taken for granted, and that is really really disturbing. And I think a lot of that has to do with being able to disguise people's anti-Semitism um, with the term of anti-Zionism. Right. So we we've seen when, when the Jews in the United States have been attacked. They weren't attacked as Zionists. They were attacked as Jews. Nobody is yelling, "Let's kill the Zionists." They were yelling, "Let's kill the Jews," and 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 that is really disturbing. And frankly, I think we all have to figure out how how to get back to the values that Washington and the founding fathers have envisioned, and call out these anti-Semites, whether they're in Congress or on college campuses, right. uh, uh, to to call them call them for what they are. And, and make sure they understand that this is not uh, uh, something that's compatible with the American value system. Yeah, I mean, speaking about, you, you brought up the squad, the Hamas caucus, um, these, these hate-filled individuals who are not, they're not even disguising as well as they should because that's how open and free they feel and confident they feel about their position against Israel and against Jews. I mean, whenever I talk to, you know, sound-minded uh, Democrat, they always say they're in the minority. Oh, they're just fringe or they're just those ladies are just, you know, they don't represent us. Um, and I've heard this many, many times from people I, I, I respect very much. Um, so then the question begs, how did four individuals, uh, you know, in, in, how, how do they have so much influence over the masses? How, how did they take over the platform of the Democrat Party? Well, the, I think we just have to deal in reality. The Democratic Party of today is not the Democratic Party of uh, John F. Kennedy. 
um, the the um, energy of that party is emanating from the likes of AOC and and Talib and uh, Omar, and not to mention about a dozen others who who stepped up on the house on the floor of the House of Representatives. It's also in academia on college campuses. So the pop culture that is either complicit in us in, in, in supporting their, their points of view or being cowed into not speaking up uh, has given them the power that they're exercising. You know, I don't know if they're in the minority or not, but I know that they're the most um, uh, dominant uh, voice within the Democratic Party and within progressive circles. And I think, right. uh, I think progressives of good faith have to own that and have to call them on it. And frankly, I don't. I'm sure you caught uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, retracting her, right. Uh, right. her her scolding of, uh, of of the Hamas caucus the other day, Ilhan Omar particularly. Uh, and so, when you see the Speaker of the House um, turn herself into a pretzel, mm -hmm. trying not to offend an overt anti-Semite, mm -hmm. I mean that just tells you exactly where. Uh, where, where the power structure within the Democratic Party is. Right, right. Or where the momentum is going and people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi want to be a part of that wave. They don't want to miss that wave um, for fear that, like you said, the future of the party will go on without them. Um, you know, you're the best person to, to answer this question. Now, what we've seen is, you know, a shift in, in narrative, right, with um, a, a, a really... Uh, successful PR campaign. And, you know, uh, it comes from Hamas, you know, owning the, the media over the conflict with Israel, or, you know, the, uh, these, uh, the hijacking of social justice movements. So you have, you know, gays for Palestine, which therefore you have gays who are, you know, it, it leads to gays who are anti-Semitic. And then you have women for the Palestinians, which leads to women being, uh, you know, anti-Semitic. Or obviously the, the best example is the hijacking of the BLM movement, um, which obviously is, is not the, the purest cause uh, to begin with, but uh, the hijacking of that to include anti-Semitism in its charter, um, you know, to the point where you can't say, you know, I don't support Black Lives Matter. I think Black Lives, in fact, matter, but I don't, you know, I don't support the franchise. Um, and now when they add to that franchise this, you know, this this tenant of anti-Semitism, you know, they, they have bought over and indoctrinated so many young minds and hearts from somebody who has both expertise in this field and also expertise in advertising, in PR. How did they pull this off so seamlessly? Uh, you know, where are the people who, who are watching and, and basically, you know, feeling that they were, you know, taken over uh, by a movement that they didn't believe in and now they're a part of? Um, are there those kinds of voices and why aren't we hearing them? I mean, can you map this out for us, you know, with, with your level of expertise in this field? I, I hold the media responsible. Um, I believe that, uh, well, be, I should say beyond the upbringing of, of um, all of these people and the education system that has allowed such uh, nonsensical ideas to penetrate our education system and, and uh, you know, poison the minds of young people with, with these completely, um, uh, you know, completely um, uh, irrational ideas uh, that would be laughed out of the classrooms just, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so, but, but, but what, what really makes it penetrate the, 
the popular culture is uh, the ir irresponsibility of the media to do its job. You know, it used to be where the press would say, you know, we're, we're the watchdogs for the people. We hold the power, right. the powerful to account. Um, I don't know when it happened. I mean, it started, it's been a gradual descent into, um, you know, into journalistic malpractice for a long time. But we're, we're at a point now where journalists are no longer um, doing their job. Most of them, some of them are really good, but, but the general, the general, um, I think, um, mainstream media narrative has been to support these irrational, um, un-American voices without holding them accountable. Part of it, I think, has to do with just not being exposed to uh, to actual history. Mm -hmm. Part of it has been because, you know, it's, it's politically incorrect to right. hold a certain group of people uh, accountable because you're, you're going to lose all your friends in the cocktail circuit. Um, and right. uh, so so it's it's hard to be a journalist. Right. But um, but that's that's the job. And if the media is not going to hold them accountable, if somebody is not going to say, you know, you're full of crap and and this is why. And it doesn't it doesn't take it, it really doesn't take that much effort to get to the truth. Then then I think we're at a disadvantage. And of course, I say that both as uh, as a former, um, you know, for, former uh, a person who's been involved in, in politics, but uh, as a Republican, as a conservative, uh, you know, the deck is stacked against the conservative point of view and mass media. But but also in terms of popular culture where, uh, look, you know, even when I worked in advertising in New York, you know, uh, if, if you supported, uh, you know, Bush against Gore, you really shouldn't, you really couldn't talk about that in the, right. you know, and among your colleagues. However, you supported Gore against Bush. There was no problem in having conversation mm -hmm. in the office about that. And, and that just kind of underscores the double standard that's been seeping into um, our, our, our collective um, behavior for, for, for decades. And it's too bad, it's too bad. I think, I think we need to wake up before it's too late. Um, you know, grownups are supposed to be grownups and some of these things are inconvenient to bring up, but the truth is the truth. And, you know, if, we're, if we care about the values that America was built on uh, that has created the most prosperous, the most free and tolerant society that's ever existed. We, we better get our act together because there's no guarantee that it's gonna last. That's right. I mean, what better message to, to end on than that? Uh, that's tremendous. And it's it's a big, big, big undertaking. But I hope that the the children, you know, your children, my child is only one, but he's going to grow up to obviously learn these values, will be confident enough and knowledgeable enough um, to carry this message into the next generation uh, and and do so in, in, in a way that can influence the media, uh, the, the you know, social media, their friends, the classroom, and, and all the different bullies that they have to face uh, going forward. So I thank you so much for your expertise. I thank you for your time and for joining us today. Thanks for having me back, Lisa. Appreciate it. We'll hopefully have to have you back on very soon. Uh, and uh, for all of you who'd like to subscribe to our podcast, you can go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And to sign up for our daily top 10 email, make sure to visit our website at foreigndesknews.com and you can sign up there. See you all next week.